Hey everybody, Boozy here. This week on Boozy's Legal Funhouse, it's a little different. First, I want to let you know, we're going to be talking about something that's in the news, and that is the murder of Dante Wright uh, in Brooklyn Center, Minnesota. So it is a sensitive topic, and I'm just going to be blunt. I was speaking off the cuff when I was talking about it, uh, as I have a bad tendency to do. So if that's going to disturb you, I would strongly suggest you just come back next week or fast forward to about the 30-minute mark when we're going to start talking about the legal case tonight of uh, U.S. v. Holmes, A Tale of High Seas Murder and the Defense of Necessity. Other than that, a couple notes for tonight's episode that you may want to keep in mind. Number one, while I recorded it live, as usual, in front of the Discord server, it's not as well put together as normal. Last week, I had my second COVID vaccine, and it's left me feeling just a little under the weather. So I do want to warn you, this isn't going to be a great episode. I'm really setting those expectations high. Uh, I do appreciate you listening, and I hope you enjoy what there is tonight, and hopefully next week I'll be back on my normal fun. Until then, please enjoy Episode 12 of Boozy's Legal Funhouse, and I'll be back to normal soon. Thank you. Hi everybody, how you doing? It's Boozy here, the Boozy Badger, Boozy Barrister, with another episode of Boozy's Legal Funhouse on this wonderful Monday evening. This one is recorded live, as always, this time in the Discord server full of our Patreon supporters. To read off the names of those Patreon supporters as I do at every stream, our producers tonight are Jeremy the Head Fox and Wolf in a Barrel, Dragor, Jack of All Korgs, Nikolai, Tezcat, Magic Jag, Wayland DeRoche, Beaten, Dozer the Trash Panda, Eddie the Weather Fox, Mark Beckwar, Mama T, Uncle Kage, Ask Jeeves, Lisa Lupe, Mark Phaedrus, Netherlinks, Pandemonium Hawk, Petrov Neutrino, Scott Skunk, Tyranth, Buddy Good Boy, CC Otter, Chroma Hydra, David Hunter, Ed B. Cali, Evie Solis, Feck, Ghost Rope, Grace Jane Gollinger, Ian Delahorn, Jason Knight, Just Dave, Just James, Callet, Coma Blood Paul, Mark Whipple, Michael Blocker, Sean Rabbit, The Dragon Show, Wheelie, and Zeros the Lion. As we get started tonight, we normally open with a bit of legal news. And uh, this week, as I'm sitting here recording this week's episode, which may sound a little off, I'm actually recording it from my bedroom. I spent this weekend laying in bed recovering from my second COVID vaccination. Uh, So do keep that in mind as you listen. But this week, as I'm sitting here, there's only one piece of legal news that we really need to talk about, and that is the currently recent shooting of Dante Wright in Brooklyn Center, Minnesota. Dante Wright was a young person of color, age 20, who was pulled over in the Minneapolis, Minnesota suburb of Brooklyn Center, allegedly for having an air freshener dangling from the rearview window of his vehicle. During the course of the arrest, or the the traffic stop, I should say, the police officers determined that Mr. Wright had a warrant out for his arrest, And while they tried to cuff him, Mr. Wright, being a 20-year-old, a young man, uh, reacted by climbing back in his car to try to get away. One of the officers then drew their sidearm and shot him. His car traveled a couple blocks after that, striking a concrete barrier and another vehicle, and Mr. Wright was dead on the scene. All this against the backdrop of the Derek Chauvin Trial. Derek Chauvin being the police officer in Minneapolis, Minnesota, who last year knelt on the neck of George Floyd for nine minutes, resulting in his death by asphyxiation. There's not a lot I can say. I wish there was more that I could say about this, but the fact of the matter is there's not much to say in this situation. I certainly have opinions. And uh, I know that's exactly what everybody wants to hear is an old, fat, white lawyer's opinions on this matter. And before I give them, I have to say uh, that 
mistakes were made, and this isn't some both sides bullshit. Uh, I, I want to impart advice I give to my clients on a regular basis, and it is right or wrong. If somebody with a gun, if a police officer is telling you to do something, let us argue about it. And that is not to place any of the blame for what has happened on Mr. Wright. Mr. Wright was a 20-year-old kid. He's a kid. He was a kid, and he was scared. As a matter of fact, I would argue that all of the blame in this situation belongs on those police officers, especially in light of the fact that the Brooklyn Center Police Department went on today and said that their officer, who has been subjected to their training, and one would expect to be experienced, uh, mistook their gun for their taser and accidentally shot Mr. Wright. But what wasn't an accident was the fact that this is just the latest in a long line of incidents where black, indigenous, or people of color have had to fear the police. It comes immediately on the heels of a revelation that a African-American and Hispanic army lieutenant in Virginia was being stopped by the police and out of fear for his own safety, went to a well-lit area, proceeded slowly to a well-lit area to be pulled over, and was then pepper-sprayed by the police while holding his arms out of the window of his vehicle in uniform, saying repeatedly, I'm scared. I'm scared. I'm scared of you. I'll comply, but open the door, undo my seatbelt. I don't want to make any movements that will get me shot by you. When we are at a point in this country where the people that we have ostensibly put in a position to enforce our laws are leaving citizens scared for their lives at having interactions with them, maybe we should rethink how law enforcement is done. Because the the thing that has gotten me, and this is just me speaking, this is just an opinion, is the police are a civil authority. They are not a military authority. They are a civil authority, and they are ostensibly there to enforce the laws and protect the people of the community. And when we get to a point where those same police officers are putting people at fear for their lives, maybe it is time that as an institution, the police be reconsidered. And what strikes me even more, and what strikes me very heavily in the light in, of, the, of the right shooting, is the offenses here and the misinformation that has spread. See, I went into my office this morning, having been laid up most of the weekend, not being really aware that this had occurred, and I caught up on the reading, and one of the very first things I read was Dante Wright was uh, resisting arrest for a felony warrant for gun possession. There was a felony warrant out for his arrest, and I looked at it and said, no, there wasn't. There was a warrant out for failure to appear on two misdemeanor charges. It was a bench warrant. And if you're not familiar with what a bench warrant is, a bench warrant is quite literally a warrant issued from the bench normally because you didn't show up for a court date. And what was the court date for? Well, they don't issue bench warrants to bring you in for felony charges. That's just an arrest warrant. They issue bench warrants for traffic tickets, for parking tickets, for not showing up when you're subpoenaed to testify, not appearing before the court when you have been summoned. And looking even further into those charges, into the charges that led to the failure to appear, it became very obvious there was no felony. It was two misdemeanors, one for fleeing the police, one for owning a gun or having a gun on you without a permit, both of which are misdemeanors in Minnesota. And then I read the complaint that underwrote, that, that underlied those two misdemeanor 
charges against Mr. Wright that had led to the failure to appear. And the complaint read very simply that the police had received a phone call regarding a young African-American male uh, waving a gun or pointing a gun and that they got into a white Toyota Camry with four other people and left. The police responded to that call, located a white Toyota Camry and saw a person in the back seat. They made everybody get out of the vehicle. The passenger in the back seat ran off. They ran from the police, successfully evaded the police. This was all in June of 2020, by the way. And that the police then said, oh, it's Dante Wright. We know him from prior encounters. We, we identify him. He's known to us. And then when they talked to the people in the car, they found a gun in, under the backseat of the car. And the people in the car said, oh, yeah, that's Dante's gun, the guy who had run off. And that was enough to issue a summons. A summons is just simply a mailed letter saying, hey, we're charging you with something. We're not going to send a warrant out for you. We're not sending a team out to arrest you. That's what you see in felonies a lot of the times. The summons is you have been summoned to appear before the court to answer to these misdemeanor charges or these traffic violations or things of that nature. And it struck me how minor and how, how full of holes really that case was against Mr. Wright. This thing that everybody is saying, oh, he had a warrant, so he was obviously dangerous. I mean, first, uh, I can't help but point out that the only identification of him in that case was by the police officers, and it wasn't based on they asked him his name, or they asked other people his name, or they saw his ID and ran his name. It was, well, we know him from other times we've seen him, so it's him. He's known to us. And that's a very speculative statement in my mind. Could just be a number of things. Maybe the police did know him. Maybe they were mistaken as to his identity and thought they knew him. And the gun was found in the area and somebody there who didn't run off but was in the vehicle said, oh yeah, no, it's the gun of the guy who ran off. But all of them have a good reason to believe or to state at least that it's not their gun. As a matter of fact, I, I think back to when I was in law school and a district attorney, a former district attorney, I should say, came in and spoke to us and was talking about how they charge criminal cases where something in a vehicle could be the possession of everyone. And what they essentially do is they say, one of you's going to jail for it. Whose is it? How do we know that didn't happen there? I mean, these were by no means damning charges, especially in light of the fact that you could even raise a very genuine question of whether the police should have even stopped the vehicle back in June for the call. I mean, the call they got was, somebody has a gun. Someone has a gun. A black guy has a gun. And back in 2000, the Supreme Court of the United States heard a case very similar to that. I'm talking about Florida v. JL, uh, 529 U.S. 266-2000, argued in front of the United States Supreme Court, and a unanimous United States Supreme Court said that the simple fact somebody called in and said, hey, there's a guy with a gun, isn't enough on its own to justify the police stopping or detaining people. The facts in that case were very simple. On October 13, 1995, the Miami-Dade Police Department received an anonymous tip that a black male wearing a plaid shirt was standing at a bus stop with a gun. Two cops went out to respond, saw three black men at that bus stop, and stopped a 15-year-old wearing a plaid shirt, and they found the gun on him. At trial, the defense moved to suppress it, saying that that frisk was illegal. The search, the Terry stop from Terry v. Ohio, was illegal based on the tip received. And the, the Florida Appellate Court said, no, that's reasonable. It's reasonable. They had a tip that somebody had a gun. The Florida Supreme Court overruled it. And the United States Supreme Court then came back and said... That's actually right. You should have suppressed it. You know why? 
because there's absolutely nothing illegal about someone having a gun. It didn't matter that at the end of the day, the person was 15, 16 years old and they legally couldn't have the gun because the tip didn't say that. And when I read that complaint, I noticed that the complaint was very specific. The caller said a 17-year-old had a gun. That's why they went out on the call that eventually led to the warrant for Dante Wright was the caller said, oh, it's a 17-year-old with a gun, but Dante Wright wasn't a 17-year-old with a gun. It's interesting that that little fact was thrown in there. Oh, they're a 17-year-old with a gun. Oh, he's known to us. Oh, the other people in the car did this. But they didn't issue an arrest warrant. Nobody went out and picked up Dante Wright. They issued a bench warrant. They issued a summons, ordering him to appear via Zoom. And summons are issued by mail. They're not even always certified mail. Summons are issued by mail to attend a Zoom hearing on April 2nd of 2021. And when he didn't appear, the judge issued a bench warrant. This person has missed their court date. If you find them, you're ordered to take them into custody and bring them before me to answer to it. And that's exactly what the police said they were trying to do. Oh, we found out he had a warrant after we stopped him for a dangling air freshener. I cannot tell you over the course of my career how many people I've had call me and say, hey, I was stopped by the police and they told me I had a bench warrant for X thing or Y thing. And they told me I needed to get it cleared up. It's happened. The police have stopped and said, did you know you have a warrant out for you? You have a bench warrant. You need to contact the courthouse. And they call me and I call the court and we reschedule their hearing date. It was so common when I was growing up for people to have failure to appear warrants that the district court in Jefferson County, Kentucky had a list in the clerk's office where you went in and you wrote down your client's name, their case number, and the date you wanted it relisted for. It's not uncommon. And that this young man was being taken into custody, I can't help but wonder if what they were really looking to do was to take him into custody under a warrant and then perform something called a search incident to arrest, which is a safety search of the area immediately surrounding the driver of a vehicle when you take them into custody. They can go through the cabin of the car to see if they can find anything else. And I'll tell you why I may think that. You see, Mr. Wright, and there's some controversy on this, states that he was likely stopped in a call to his mom prior to the police shooting him because there was an air freshener dangling from his rearview mirror. In Minnesota and in some other jurisdictions, it is illegal to have anything hanging from your rearview mirror, anything between you and the windshield. So would that form the justification for a stop? Well, unfortunately, yes. And I say unfortunately for a good reason. This comes from a United States Supreme Court case, 1996, Wren v. United States, 517 U.S. 806, 1996 to be exact. And in that case, they found that a pretextual stop is a constitutional stop. And what is a pretextual stop? Well, in that case... Some officers were patrolling a high drug area, and they saw somebody run a red light. They were following them, is what happened. It was a vehicle in a high drug area, and the police thought they were dealing drugs or purchasing drugs, but they couldn't find a reason to stop them. They didn't have the probable cause needed to stop that vehicle. And they claimed that the car did a stop, a rolling stop at a stop sign and then turned without using the signal. And they used that to stop the vehicle and then assess the situation from there, build the probable cause to search the car. Now, in that case, the people who were arrested came back and said, hey, no, they didn't stop us because we broke a traffic law. They stopped us because they wanted to search us. They wanted to perform an investigation. They didn't, it wasn't because we made a turn at a stop sign without the, without the turn signal. 
is because they want it to look in our car. And the Supreme Court said, that's okay. You can do that. You can use the traffic violation as a mere pretext to further an investigation as long as the traffic violation is valid. And in the case of Mr. Wright, it's fairly clear to me that if they were stopping him for an air freshener dangling from his rear view mirror, it was a pretextual stop. They didn't stop him because they wanted to uh, tell him of the dangers of that or give him a ticket for that. They stopped him because he was a young black man driving a car and they found a reason because they wanted to know what else was going on. And it's not like we don't know about the dangers of pretextual stops. We've known about them since almost immediately after Wren v. United States was decided. A law professor, David Harris, almost immediately wrote an article saying this is going to result in discrimination. This is going to result in profiling. This is going to result in harassment. They will enforce these laws unfairly against minorities to try to confirm their deep-rooted racism. There's no better word for it. And it happens. I often say that the justice system in and of itself is not broken, but the way we administer it is. Over the past several days now, I've seen videos of an officer and the United States Army being pepper sprayed while telling members of the civil authority who are supposed to be enforcing law for the benefit of all the citizenry that he is scared for his life if he complies with their orders to unbuckle his seatbelt or reach inside of his vehicle to unlock his door, and I have heard the chilling words of the officer on the scene as that officer responded, You should be. I often say the police will lie to you. In that situation, the police were not lying to him. He had every reason to be scared of those officers who pepper-sprayed him and dragged him out of his vehicle. And Mr. Wright had every reason to believe that those officers in Brooklyn Center were stopping him because an air freshener was dangling from his rear-view mirror because it would fit the pattern of unequal enforcement and unjust enforcement, and disparate treatment under the law based on the color of your skin or your ethnicity in general. I don't have answers. What I do have is a general statement that this cannot be how we allow the law to be applied. The killing of Dante Wright was unjust and unjustified. And I have very large questions about why every time an African-American man or a Hispanic man or a person of color or an indigenous person is gunned down in these situations, they immediately turn to, well, did they have any warrants? Had they ever committed a crime in the past? What was their general demeanor going back their entire life? As if it justifies it. Allow me to be clear, there is no situation where the police are justified in shooting someone who is attempting to flee where they do not pose a danger to themselves, the officers, or the community. Nothing would have occurred for Mr. Wright being allowed into his car and to leave that evening without the further actions of the police who had already identified him who already knew where he lived and could have picked him up there. Instead, 
I would argue solely because of the actions of those officers and because of the deep-seated disparate treatment that certain people receive from the people who are supposed to be enforcing our laws and the civil authority that we allow to have their, their jobs and their status and the ability, really the honor it should be, to serve the public. A young man is dead. I have trouble reconciling that from time to time with my role in the justice system. And all I can do now is hope and advocate for justice and ask you to do the same. The law should treat everyone as equal, and that means that all of our servants of the law, from the justices of the Supreme Court down to the lowliest patrol officer, should understand no person is to be treated differently simply because of the color of their skin. That said, <clears throat> tonight we have a, a few different things to talk about uh, outside of that, uh, all in one fun story of legal history. Uh, tonight I, I do have a ghoulish tale of the sea uh, and the legal principle that uh, while a seaman may go down with the ship, they can't kill passengers and get away with it. That's right, maritime murder is today's topic, so break out the gold-fringed admiralty flags and start denying the authority of the court as we explore the macabre principles and precedents of U.S. v. Holmes. Remember, when listening to this, that you shouldn't take legal advice from a fat guy who pretends to be a cartoon badger on the internet. I'm a lawyer, folks, but I'm not your lawyer. And when we're talking about stuff, we're talking about it in the vein of entertainment and education, not legal advice. The only way to have me be your lawyer is to call my office, make an appointment, have me agree to do so, and pay me a retainer fee of my choosing. If you haven't gone through all of those steps and entered into an engagement letter, there is no attorney-client relationship or privilege. And frankly, if you're planning to rely on a discussion about murdering passengers, you should probably be talking to someone other than me in the first place. Like a therapist. A therapist is a nice place to start. <clears throat> now, I know what you may be thinking, and that is... There's no way there's a specific law about when it is appropriate to murder passengers on a ship, Boozy. And I'm here to tell you, there most certainly is. And not only is it law, it's United States law, originating out of the great state of Pennsylvania, where the Liberty Bell is filled with crack and the National Park Service has to stop my clients from trying to smoke it. Because you know, Ben Franklin loved himself some crack. He found it electrifying. So, back in 1841, there was a ship called the William Brent. It was an American flagged vessel back when it meant it was mostly crewed by Americans and not completely crewed by Americans, and it plied the North Atlantic trade. It was, by all accounts, nothing special or out of the ordinary. It was just a ship, like just about any other ship out there. Not big, just one of those ships that crossed the ocean, like it set out from Liverpool, England, en route to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, on March 13, 1841, with a complement of 17 crewmen, a load of cargo, and roughly 65 Scottish and Irish immigrants who sought the comforts of a new life in the United States, that land of bustling opportunity. And, at this time, President William Henry Harrison who I'm certain all those immigrants were looking forward to having as their president. Unfortunately, his death wasn't going to be the only disappointment to come out of their journey. And I hear you saying, We're guessing the boat sank, Boozy, and I would like to say, first, it was a ship, not a boat, you cretins, and second, yes, the ship sank. 
About a month out from Liverpool, while plying the North Atlantic in April as the icebergs roamed, the William Brown decided to channel the spirit of the Titanic from decades in the future and smacked dead on into an iceberg. It was around 10 p.m. on April 19, 1841, and at the time she was about 250 miles off the coast of Newfoundland when it happened. And you know, the boat began to sink. Because that's what wooden sailing ships do when they hit icebergs in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. They sink. Shortly after water started pouring in, it became pretty obvious the William Brown wasn't going to stay afloat. At all. And that led to the captain ordering the crew and passengers to abandon the ship. A responsible thing to do, except for one minor fact. There weren't any fucking lifeboats. And I know, that sounds really illegal. You'd think so, right? How could a vessel carry passengers, even if it was a cargo vessel primarily, if it couldn't manage to actually take care of them once it was on the water? Even under the common law principles of duty of care and negligence, you'd think that there was some general standard of, oh yeah, hey, if you hit something in this wide and barren waterlogged death trap it takes over a month to cross, you'll need to make sure the folks paying you to get them to the other side have some way of getting off the ship. But no. Maritime law was less let's take care of the passengers, boyos, and more, fuck you, I will not get my overly fancy shoes with buckles and shit on them, wet, up until the latter half of about the 19th century. For instance, it wouldn't be until 1849 that even seafaring British vessels would decide, oh, hey, yeah, we should probably make sure vessels have some basic number of boats on them to save folks, which led to the passage of the United Kingdom's 1849 Passengers Act. And even then, it didn't base the number of boats off the number of passengers, but rather the size of the vessel. So, I mean, what I'm getting at here is that in 1841, on a U.S. flagged vessel, there was absolutely no law requiring the carrying or usage of lifeboats. Sure, a vessel owner could choose to have some extra boats just sitting around. But it was by no means required or even common because, and this is important, traveling across the ocean was not a common thing for passengers to do. There was no tourist trade as it is thought of today. There weren't any real passenger vessels that were seagoing as they are thought of today. The most common form of folks going across the ocean were as passengers on any variety of cargo vessels, and that's just how it was. So the law was, in general, just not concerned with regulating something that wasn't that large to begin with, namely the safety of paying passengers on vessels crossing the ocean and minimal vessel safety standards. Fun, huh? And I know what you're thinking. If there were no lifeboats, what did they use? That's a good question. The short answer is whatever boats they did have. Back in those days, most ships actually did carry at least a couple smaller boats with them. For instance, the Jolly Boat, which, despite the name, was not a term for a love nest dangerously close to the water but rather was a small four- or five-person craft used for fucking around ashore. Likewise, the longboat, which could hold anywhere from 12 to 20 people depending on its size, was for larger excursions to the shore when one of these majestic vessels dropped anchor in a place with no dock or harbor. And for a cargo ship with a crew of 17, either of those would have served as adequate backup in the event their ship sank due to an iceberg. And remember... These were primarily cargo vessels. Passengers were an afterthought of the trade, not the purpose of it. So ship owners would say, yeah, we really only need enough in the way of an emergency transport to get the crew off, and we could probably cram a couple extra folks in a longboat and a pinch, so we're pretty well set. Which is cool and shit until you think about the fact that those two vessels provided, at best, seating for 25 people 
and were built with those numbers in mind, whereas the William Brown had 17 crew members and 65 passengers on board. About 82 people total. No goddamn way was that many fitting in a jolly boat. Now, if you remember, the William Brown was definitely going down faster than an enthusiastic date on the ride home. With 17 crewmen and 64 passengers, because some people died of non-sinking shit, you can do the simple math. And in the end, 31 people would go under the seas with the ship. But not a single goddamn one of them would be a member of the crew, who had promptly swung out the jolly boat and clamored their happy asses inside. To their credit, though, they did take on 33 of the passengers, one in the jolly boat with the captain and the rest in a longboat with the first mate and eight other crew members. For those of you who suck at math, that meant there were about 42 people in a boat that was designed for about 20, maximum. So it was riding pretty low in the water at that point. Oh, and just in case it wasn't enough, the boat was leaking even as they rowed it away from the foundry in William Brown with a plug in the bottom of it having seemingly been lost and the forks of Bard just shoving whatever the hell they could in the hole left by it while bailing the longboat out and telling the people who were definitely about to fucking die on the William Brown that they'd probably sink themselves shortly thereafter. What I'm getting at is sea travel in the 19th century was fucking brutal. <clears throat> now, I know what you're thinking, which is, is the whole legal part of this, about how the whole crew abandoned the ship, just leaving 31 passengers on a sinking ship to die while saving themselves, and I'd love to say that the answer is yes, but, uh, no. It's about the passengers, the crew in the longboat did save from the sinking vessel, and how the crew just straight up tossed like 14 of them into the ocean to die. See, a boat of that era was designed to take so much weight and such before going under, and the longboat was not designed for 42 people to be hanging around in it, especially not while flooding. Add into this the fact that a storm and some rough seas start to swamp the already low-in-the-water vessel, and it would tip easily, and you get the picture. So, in that situation, the crew decided to do what any self-respecting mariner would do when entrusted with the lives of passengers and their safety and forced 14 motherfucking passengers over the side of the longboat into the freezing waters. This was at the behest of the first mate who told his men simply, you know what to do, or something of that nature. And the crew responded like, yep, someone ain't going to visit Ann Ethel this year, and started chucking passengers out of the boat. So by the end of what can best be described as the Maritime Massacre, the only people left in the longboat were the crew, two married men, and a young boy. Oh, and I should mention that they didn't lose their chivalry, though. With the exception of two women who jumped in after their brother, all of the 14 forced out were single guys. Women, children, and married men got to live, so uh, make sure you propose before any ocean voyages. And you may think, well, at least they had some mercy, but did I mention that the morning after they threw 14 people into the ocean, they found two guys hiding who were like, no, please, and they just threw them to the angry sea gods as well? Now, what you're thinking right now, and I can hear it, is can we get to the law part, Boozy? And I, I just want to tell you, yeah, but I really would like to talk about maritime mass murder a little while longer. Anyhow, long story short, a vessel found the longboat and picked them up, taking the surviving crew and passengers on to Philadelphia, the initial port of call. Once there, however, the whole crew of that longboat promptly got the fuck out of town. 
Meanwhile, the passengers toddled down to the federal court to register what was likely the worst TripAdvisor rating ever seen. Their complaint, to wit, was 16 counts of straight-up murdering passengers. Which, I mean, remember that the next time you feel the need to complain about housekeeping, not leaving a mint on your pillow. Criminal complaint registered. The court sprung into action to hold those responsible accountable and promptly called forth the owners of the ship, the shipping line, the captain of the vessel, and everyone else who could have taken action or initiated policies to make the passage safer. Or, you know, they took a look around Philadelphia and found the only crewman from the lifeboat without the good sense to get the hell out of Dodge, a kid named Alexander Holmes, and decided, you know what? Good enough! Let's charge this one guy who wasn't an officer with homicide on behalf of the entire fucking crew. Because justice sometimes doesn't give a shit, and executives escaping the law isn't anything new. Despite me using the word kit, Mr. Holmes actually was an experienced sailor who, according to testimony in court, may have actually been slightly more in charge of the boat than the first mate at that point, but likely because the first mate had little or no desire to make what Holmes was viewing as a necessary decision. And considering the court records and testimony actually show that Holmes may have ran back onto the sinking William Brown to save a sick kid, it's hard to paint him as some weirdly evil character here. In fact, as would be shown in court records, Holmes didn't take any action, nor arguably did any of the other sailors, to commit the passengers to the deep out of an insatiable bloodlust legendarily associated with Philadelphians, but rather out of necessity. Which is a real legal defense, typically on par with self-defense. Here's the thing. Necessity, as a defense to a criminal charge, is basically saying, yes, I did this horrible thing. However, I only did it because if I didn't do it, I thought there was a real threat of some greater harm happening, which I had no part in creating. So I didn't have any other choice but to do this criminal thing. In other words, Holmes's defense was, okay, yeah, we threw those folks to their deaths, but if we hadn't, something much worse would have happened. We didn't have any other choice. In essence, Holmes was arguing that if they didn't throw people overboard, the whole vessel would have sank. Therefore, it was necessary for Holmes and the crew to drown people, because otherwise everyone in the longboat would have died which may have worked except for two things. One, Holmes was not the only crewman left. And two, Holmes was technically only charged with the manslaughter of one specific passenger, a Mr. Askin. Please feel free to insert an Askin for it joke right here. And why was that important? Well, to take the last thing first, the defense of necessity can justify a lot of stuff. Think about breaking a car window to save a baby locked inside on a hot day. Sure, you're engaging in the destruction of property, but there's a greater harm that would result the death of a child or severe injury to one if you didn't. Or, for instance, setting someone's property on fire to create a fire break and save a town. That's a key factor in the defense itself. What is the relative value of the harm caused by the action versus the harm that is likely to result if the action wasn't taken? And that works great for things like damaging property to save lives or burning down one house to save 20. But when you're measuring the lives of people, it becomes harder. How do you measure the relative value of person A versus the harm caused by, saving, by not saving person B? You can't. Like, you honestly can't. That's why necessity defenses generally will not apply when you are taking one life to save another or even several other lives. It may mitigate the harm, but it will never truly relieve it unless the person whose life you're taking is the source of the ultimate danger. 
And I hear you out there saying, but Boozy, by throwing the people overboard, he was actually helping to save more people, which was raised, certainly, and discarded, because, one, there was no warning and choice given to any of the people being tossed overboard, two, only passengers were thrown overboard and none of the crew, and three, the charge wasn't for everyone, but rather one specific death, that of Mr. Askin. Which is important, because it made the trial court weigh the life of Askin against Holmes specifically, and not against that of everyone else. The question became, in this situation, should the death of one specific person over another be considered necessary? The question wasn't, was it necessary that anyone go overboard? And in that situation, when Asked to say that in a circumstance where every other crewman was alive and either Holmes or Askin should be forced to drown, Holmes had no necessity defense to sacrificing the life of a passenger over his own. Which came into play more when the court considered the relative duties of crew versus a passenger. A crewman, the court noted, was responsible for the safety of a vessel, its cargo, and everyone on board it. As such, according to the court, Holmes had the obligation to place the value of a passenger's life over his own, and therefore, where his own death would not result in a greater harm to others, chose choose to sacrifice his life. Had there been only enough crewmen to safely handle the longboat, the situation may have been different in the eyes of the law. But at that point, there were numerous crewmen available, of which Holmes was one. Or... As the court put it in flowery language, in U.S. v. Holmes, 26 Federal Case 360, Eastern District of Pennsylvania, 1842, the sailor, to use the language of a distinguished writer, owes more benevolence to another than to himself. He is bound to set a greater value on the life of others than on his own. And while we admit that sailor and sailor may lawfully struggle with each other for the plank which can save but one, we think that, if the passenger is on the plank, even the law of necessity justifies not the sailor who takes it from him. This rule may be deemed a harsh one towards the sailor, who may have thus far done his duty. But when the danger is so extreme that the only hope is in sacrificing either a sailor or a passenger, any alternative is hard. And would it not be the hardest of any to sacrifice a passenger in order to save a supernumerary sailor? And so the court struck down the concept of the law of the sea being the process by which sailors would draw lots amongst people to decide who goes into the drink, essentially saying necessity will not allow for murder where there are other alternatives available. And where the person claiming it is a crewman whose life is less valuable by way of duty than that of a passenger. So, where there's an extra sailor, the extra sailor should sacrifice their life for that of a passenger because of their duty. The court's holding was specifically based on the idea that losing one sailor would not result in an increased risk to the remainder of the passengers and crew in the longboat. Had Holmes taken the plunge himself, there still would have been eight sailors in that vessel able to assist and keep it afloat. The court even went out of its way to make this clear, stating the captain, indeed, and a sufficient number of seamen to navigate the boat must be preserved, for except these abide in the ship, all will perish. But if there be more seamen than are necessary to manage the boat, the supernumerary sailors have no right for their safety to sacrifice the passengers. The implication, then, is that the crew should have decided who amongst them should die before killing passengers, and due to the higher value a crewman has to put on the lives of passengers, they should have been willing to pay that cost. And how to decide? Well, the court suggested that they should have drawn lots amongst themselves, and only then, having drawn lots amongst the passengers to determine whose lives weren't really all that important, no matter how smart and handsome their mother told them they were. And I know you may be thinking, so the court said it's never okay for a sailor to chuck a passenger off a boat. But that's not the, what the court in Holmes said at all. 
What the court in Holmes said, to be clear, is that where there are enough seamen to operate the boat safely, and then there are some in addition to that number, the crew should first draw lots amongst themselves to decide who among the crew should go over the side before turning to the passengers. But in a situation where there were just enough crewmen to safely man the boat and no more, the court seems to imply that, while not a perfect defense to murder, necessity would mitigate the circumstances surrounding chucking passengers overboard. In that case, there would be no higher duty assigned to the crew, as they have a duty to the passengers as a whole and must remain in sufficient numbers to tend to the ship and others, while necessity in this circumstance would not justify taking a life completely, it could foreseeably make it less serious of a crime. But how do you get over the whole someone's got to go over and this fucker's had it coming aspect, which could transform what should be a cold and calculating decision on who lives and who dies to one of malice aforethought, a component of murder versus, say, manslaughter? Well, luckily, the court, as stated before, had that suggestion. Chance. Leave questions of life or death up to pure chance, like granny frittering away your inheritance in the ship's casino. Then, if an unlucky person draws a short stall on protests, throw their asses in the drink. Or, as the court put it, when the selection has been made by lots, the victim yields, of course, to his fate. Or, if he resists, force may be employed to coerce submission. And it seems like it makes sense. That's the story of a high seas death at the hands of a desperate crew. Now, court found that necessity wasn't a defense in this situation. Don't feel too bad for Mr. Holmes. His actions, throwing Mr. Askin overboard, got him six months imprisonment at hard labor and a $20 fine because, frankly, everyone sort of got that he made the decision in a rough situation with no real clear precedent. But is this really the end of the story? Well, no. But that's a tale for next time, as we continue this line of thought and talk about some good old-fashioned high-seas cannibalism and a case from merry old England next week, here on Boozy's Legal Funhouse. Hey everybody, Boozy back again. I just wanted to stop in after listening and let you know that I really did appreciate you all tuning in for tonight. I apologize if it was a little more disjointed than usual, as I said at the beginning. I'm not feeling too great tonight because I had my second COVID vaccine and it's left me a little nauseous, so I just wasn't up to all the normal excitement that I have in these. Thanks for hanging with me, though, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you want to be one of our Patreon supporters, you can do that over at patreon.com slash lawyersandliquor. Remember, $5 level and above supporters get read off at the beginning of each and every episode of Boozy's Legal Funhouse. And if you don't want to, that's fine. You can say, fat man, you're not getting any of my money. But if you enjoy the show in general, I'll ask you to go to the podcast service of your choice and rate us five stars. You can tell me to fuck off afterwards if you want. I don't really care. Until next week, I'm the Boozy Barrister, Boozy Badger, and this has been Boozy's Legal Funhouse. Thank you for listening.